0: to teach through uh, the gospel of, of Mark this morning. So let me bring you back into context a little bit. Jesus and the disciples are in Capernaum, and they are on their way to Jerusalem. There, Jesus is going to be betrayed. Uh, he's going to be abused. Uh, he's going to be killed. He's going to be murdered. And after three days, He will come back to life. And on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching His followers what it means to be His Disciple, which we have learned week after week, is the opposite of what they think it means. Uh, they have one idea and agenda, and Jesus continually pushes them in a different direction. The last week, we saw that illustrated when Jesus talked about greatness that greatness comes through serving the undeserving and welcoming the marginalized. In today's text, Uh, Seems to be kind of a a hodgepodge of stuff going on here, right? Uh, Jesus gives us three thoughts on what it means to be a disciple, to be a part of God's kingdom. And again, it looks different. It looks different for them, looks different for us. So let's kind of zone in, zero in on these three primary thoughts. I'll just kind of go through them and then we'll kind of bring it um, full circle in the end. Uh, So thought number one in this text that Jesus is instructing about what it means to be a disciple, and what he tells his disciples and says to us is that we need to be careful, be careful excluding disciples who are outside your circle, outside your tribe, outside your flavor. So Jesus says be very careful excluding other followers of Jesus who are not in your same tribe, your same circle. So back again, see what's going on here. Verse 38, um, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So, John tattles. They're on the way to Jerusalem, stopping Capernaum. John sees this other guy trying to cast, or casting out demons in Jesus' name, so he tattles on him to Jesus. Jesus hears what's going on. So, um a couple of boys in the church play uh, play baseball together, It's uh, half t-ball, half coach pitch. And yesterday we had practice, and during practice as you're kind of working with some of the boys, a few of us in the church and some others help coach these boys, um, which basically is just kind of herd the cats along the way. Um, and so they're kind of waiting to be taught individually, coached individually, and the rest of them are just standing in line. Nothing bad can happen with four-, five-, and six-year-old boys just standing in line on a baseball field waiting to be coached, right? And so the, the real coaching has to happen with the boys who are standing in line, uh, basically. And so I, we had came up with two rules. I kept saying two rules yesterday while they're standing in line. No touching. Keep your hands to yourself. That causes most of the problems. And then no tattling, right? Because everybody that's being touched by the kid in front of him or behind him is tattling on the kid like we can see. So we're going to have two line rules, no touching, no tattling. And so this is a tattle moment for John. We got somebody, Jesus, casting out demons in your name. Big picture here, John is displaying a very elitist attitude toward a unnamed exorcist. Don't worry, Jesus. I told him to stop. He's not one of us. I don't know if John thinks that like, they have a corner on the exorcism market or what's going on. The irony of this is what had just happened when Jesus came down from the Mount Transfiguration when the desperate father brought his son to Jesus. Remember what the disciples could not do? Cast the demon out. And so they were unable to cast out a demon. And now John sees someone in the name of Jesus casting out demons. And tries to shut him down. Interesting thing about John, he has this same or similar type attitude throughout the Gospels. One time John is ready to call down fire on a group of unhospitable Samaritans. Now Samaritans were naturally hated by the Jewish people, but John was ready to call down fire on them for being unhospitable, like not friendly. Well, I'll take care of this, we'll just call fire down from heaven. Uh, that happens in Luke chapter 9. In the next chapter of Mark's gospel, we'll see that John and his brother James are asking Jesus if they could have the privilege to sit on his right hand and left hand in the eternal kingdom. John over and over again shows this kind of elitist attitude, like with John, hashtag elitist attitudes trending in John's social media, right? He has this attitude that he's better. He's preferred. He's preferred. Jesus says, look, you want to be great, serve the marginalized and the ostracized. John says, we're elite, we are important, you are not. So if John's singing the old little Father Abraham song, you ever think about some of these songs we learned in Sunday school? The the theology theology of them is not that great. Maybe Father Abraham is one of them. It's really just about moving all your hand motions. If you didn't grow up in church, I'm going to apologize for I'm about this. This little illustration I'm about to use, you can be like, man, Christians are weird. This is a Christians are weird moment. Father Abraham, you know this? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And you are not, right? That's John. If you know the rest of that song, it's, so let's just praise the Lord right arm, Father Abraham. Then head, spin around. I don't know. Google it. So John says, look, someone was casting out demons. I shut him down. We are elite. We are important. They are not. By the way, John's attitude is very similar to ours. Our tribe, our circle, we have it figured out. They don't. How does Jesus respond In verse 39, to John's elitist attitude. But Jesus said, do not stop him. And then he gives us three reasons why. They're all triggered by this word for. Do not stop him for, one, no one does a mighty work in my name, Uh, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Two, for the one who is not against us is for us. Three, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose that reward. Jesus says, do not stop him. And the reason you do not stop him, one, is because no one who does mighty works in the name of Jesus can then turn around and speak evil of Jesus. Also, you can't be both for Jesus and against Jesus. You are either one or the other. Those who are for me are for me. And they're not against me. And Jesus says, this person is for me. And then this third reason, he says, the smallest act of kindness, a cup of water. That doesn't seem very big. Now, it is a big deal if you're living in a desert climate like they were. But he says, the small act of kindness does not go unrewarded, does not go unnoticed by God. And so what Jesus is calling for here, for his disciples and for us, Jesus calls for a humility and a tolerance that gives space for those who differ from us on, we'll call them, secondary matters of the faith. In other words, be careful how tightly you draw your circles over non-essential beliefs in the faith. So, Some of you that know me a little better know that I'm kind of a theology nerd at heart. Um, yeah, I know, it's weird, and I like to read that stuff and think about it and process it. I'm kind of a theology nerd at heart, but what happens with those who are theology nerds at heart, it tends to, lend it lends itself to kind of a pride, kind of a, I have it figured out, and a lack of charity for those who are outside of my own tribe. Here's what God's taught me over the last season of my life for sure. The longer I'm on the journey the more I realize how much I do not have figured out. The longer I'm on the journey, the more I realize how much I do not have figured out. So what that means is I want to give a lot of space for grace over particularly second and third circle issues. Now, use that language. If you've been at City Church for any length of time, you understand that we talk a lot in our smaller environments and then sometimes here on Sunday mornings, about the idea of concentric circles, circles that start small and get bigger, concentric circles. And that Christian faith, really, that center circle is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That There are core doctrines about what it means to follow Jesus. You are defined as a Christian by certain things. You have to believe who Jesus is, right? He lived and died and was raised uh, from the dead. These are core, essential beliefs about what it means to be a Christian, Those are non-negotiable, essential doctrines about matters of the faith. There's a second circle of a whole lot of other beliefs uh, that are interpretations from the Bible that really kind of define what denominations are or movements are, and those are non-essential matters. They're not center circle issues, but they're important issues that kind of define how you baptize and things that define denominations and movements within Christian circles. And there's just the third circle issue that is a million things in that circle that are not second circle issues and they're not core circle issues. And in that third circle are all kinds of things, right? What kind of carpet are we going to put down? How are we going to do kids' ministry? When, when are we going to gather and how often are we going to gather? These are all types of third circle issues. And what I'm emphasizing today as followers of Jesus, that we need to hold tightly those center circle issues, cling to those center circle issues, and then give a lot of space for grace outside of the center circle. Secondary circle, third circle particularly, give a lot of space for grace. It doesn't mean we don't talk about them, agree to disagree over certain things. That second circle is what helps define who City Church is. When we have covenant partner meetings, we say, hey, these are some second circle issues of things that define us as a church. And if you are partnering with City Church, this is what that kind of looks like. Uh, But those second circle issues, they're not center circle stuff. And so the emphasis is, we call it open fist Open hand, closed fist, right? We want to have a closed fist on the essential issues. Who Jesus is is not negotiable. But we want to have an open hand on a lot of other stuff, okay? Space for grace. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here, right? Stop criticizing. He is for me. He's emphasizing, as a matter of fact, in this text, kind of this God-empowered action in this exchange with the disciples. He says, those who are not against me are for me. We're on the same team. It's not a competition. They're not opponents. Man, you just see this so often in church world. Churches in the same city competing and criticizing each other and blowing each other up on social media. Those who are for me, Jesus says, are not against me. So we should be for those who are for Jesus. Amen? So we walk that line and we seek to have space for grace. And think about the contrast here from exorcisms casting out of a demon all the way to a cup of water. So two extreme different types of acts of kindness. But Jesus is emphasizing here from the big to the small, we are to have this attitude toward other followers. And I love how Jesus says that God notices these things. He rewards those who are for him. It's kind of cool that God notices a, a cup of water given in his name, all right? There's no act of kindness too small for God to take notice and to reward. And so don't think that the cup of cold water mentality is a bad one, like those small acts of kindness that God calls us to, that God takes notice. So from the exorcism all the way to the small cup of water. Now, Jesus takes us even a A step further in verse 42, as he starts using some of this language, it causes kind of wiggle in our seats a little bit. 42 Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So Jesus issues this warning against hindering the faith, and here he says, of the little ones who believe in. Me. Now, sometimes because he uses this language, the little ones, that we I think he's talking about children, and there are times in the Gospels where he does make these type of statements about children, but the actual idea here in the text and the translation here in the text has more to do uh, with, with these kind of the context of, of just ordinary, everyday disciples, followers of Jesus, like this guy, right, who is the unnamed exodus, that Jesus says, look, He issues a strong warning against hindering the faith of other followers. The word here, cause to sin, you can hear hear our English translation from this word, is the word "scandalizing." Hear that word scandal, right? Don't be a scandal. Don't cause others to sin. In other words, do not cause them to stumble. Do not offend them. And the implication of what Jesus is teaching here is that we it's the idea of impeding the faith of a fellow believer. And he uses some vivid language here to communicate the seriousness of hindering another person's faith. So in the, the ancient world, uh, there was these large cylinder-shaped millstones that were used to grind grains into flour. And so they would... Uh, put the grain on the floor, and then they would have these giant millstones that a burden of beast would would only be able to, to do circles around, right? So a donkey or a mule or a horse or an ox or something like that uh, would pull these giant millstones around this floor of grain and pound it into flour. And so this giant millstone is the illustration that Jesus is using here. He's saying like, it is better for you. It would be better for one of those giant millstones to be tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause another ordinary fellow believer uh, to stumble in their faith. So, I guess if we're using the millstone analogy, we can just boil that idea down to don't be a donkey. All right? Like, don't be a burden of beast. Jesus is saying we should encourage each other instead of excluding or hindering disciples, other followers. We are to encourage them. The kingdom of God, wake up call. The kingdom of God is bigger than us. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than, you know, my, my theology, my beliefs, my, I got all this figured out and it fits in this nice tidy little box. The kingdom of God is bigger than us we do not have the inside track on every matter of faith and so what that means is we give space for grace for those who are for Jesus when you look around other churches other believers right our primary question is are they for Jesus if they're for Jesus I'm for them We may differ on this, differ on that, squabble on this, disagree on that, have conversations about this topic, right? All those things are good and healthy as long as we recognize if they're for Jesus, I'm for them. Agree to disagree, but they're for Jesus, so I'm for them. A lot of topics that could be falling under that category. So Jesus now turns our attention to the attentiveness of our own soul, not just the idea of causing others to stumble. But the second idea that he emphasizes here is that we are to take sin seriously, right? Take it serious. Uh, Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So Jesus uses some very graphic um, hyperbole here uh, to warn his followers of being ensnared by sin. As a matter of fact, one of the early church fathers a guy by the name of Origen. Um, Origen took this text so literal that he had himself castrated because he suffered from the temptations of lust. So he had himself castrated. I don't think you need to take care of your problem that way. Like Jesus is not dealing that literal, right? He's not using literal language here. I don't want anybody pulling out like a chainsaw in the service or something to gouge your eye out. It's just going to be awkward for all of us if you take that route. Jesus is using some strong words here, right? We can't de-emphasize it. He's using some very graphic language here to remind us of the seriousness of what it means to follow him. So this instruction to, you know, hack off body parts or rip out your eyes rather than miss the kingdom of God, it helps put in perspective the importance of eternal life. And remember, we're not just talking about, in Mark's Gospel when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're not just talking about heaven, right? Like punching my ticket, going to heaven. Uh, we're talking about the kingdom of God is invaded earth, that wherever God rules and reigns is the kingdom of God. And that means earth as well, that where God rules and reigns on earth, that we are living in the kingdom of God, that, we are, that we've been talking about almost every week. What does it mean to live under the rule and reign of God, to live in the kingdom of God? And so he's talking about here, This idea of life even on earth, it's not just where am I going to spend eternity, it's the idea of whatever it is in your life that prevents you, hinders you, right, from repentance and faith, relinquishing my ideas, my thoughts, and living under his rule and reign, whatever it is that's holding you back from living under the rule and reign, strip that away in your life. Do not allow those hindrances to keep you from living under the rule and reign of God. The kingdom of God. Now think about these things that he uses. Again, it puts in perspective the importance of eternal life. These are things that we highly value. Eyes, hands, feet. I mean, these are things that we value, right? Like if you don't value them, then you lose one of them. You realize how valuable they are. We've all been involved in those question games like, If you had to either be blind or deaf, what would you choose? If you could have no arms or no legs, which would you choose? That whole game is centered around the idea all those things are valuable, right? Highly valuable to be able to function as we do as humans. And Jesus says every one of those, as valuable as they are, they are not as important as eternal life. What we view, what we do, where we go, Meaningless if we miss God's kingdom and face His judgment. You see, eyes and hands and feet are not life. They are not life. The kingdom of God is life. And to miss the kingdom is to forfeit eternal life. And Jesus uses some vivid imagery here. He uses this language of the unquenchable fire and the undying worm, right? I thought last summer that I had the undying worm and I got army worms. I thought that was the undying worm. My yard has gone to hell, right? Literally, I have undying worms in my yard. The word that's translated hell here is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a literal place. It was a steep ravine that was southwest of Jerusalem. It was a place in its ancient history that was known for human sacrifice. It was a place of human sacrifice. It later became, by the, t- by the time of Jesus, it became a, this contaminated, repulsive garbage dump where no one wanted to go. I think another translation of the word Gehenna is New Jersey. Um, I'm kidding. If you're watching the live stream and you're from New Jersey, I am kidding But it's this idea, right, of a repulsive place. And again, Jesus is using very vivid, graphic imagery here to illustrate, to warn his followers of the danger of trivializing what it means to be his disciple. Do not allow anything to hinder or prevent you from kingdom life, Jesus is saying. So take sin seriously. Take those things that would prevent you from entering into God's kingdom. Take those things that would prevent you from living under his rule and reign. Take those things serious. And then the third instruction that Jesus gives his disciples for us as well. Um, We'll just say it this way, like, be salty. He says, be salty. And this is a call to purity and unity. I know what some of you are thinking. I'm married to a salty spouse. Salty has come to mean something different in pop culture today. It means kind of a grumpy, sour, hard to get along with, salty type person. I see what you're doing, Matavia, looking right at Dave. I see it. I can see everything from up here. Old elbow like salty. Um so, so, keep your elbows to yourself. This is T ball practice. Do not touch and do not tattle. Person sitting beside you. I see all this like salty, right? I should say I'm salty at times. Um, I would say she's semi sweet. Um, <laughs> be semi sweet. No, be salty. It's a call to purity, a call to unity. Look what Jesus has to say in the final part of this little section here. Verse 48 or verse 49 For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what's Jesus teaching here? So Mark finishes this little section uh, talking about what it means to be a disciple with a salt metaphor, right, a salt illustration. Um, And the illusion here of salt in the ancient world is the, the qualities of salt that both purified and preserved, purity and preservation. So being salted with fire That was a popular language lingo that had to do with the idea of purification. That kingdom living, followers of Jesus will face trials. They will face suffering. They will face persecution. We've heard that phrase before. Trial by fire. We see it here. That you are going to face fire. But the purpose of the fire is not to destroy. The purpose of the fire is to purify. We live in a city in a culture that has a lot of refinery-type institutions, organizations, businesses here. Uh, The purpose of refinery is to to do what? Is to take, uh, we'll just use the illustration of oil, to take crude oil and to use it and turn it into uh, kind of these new petroleum products, whatever those um, are. And part of that process of the refineries, particularly even here in Decatur this happens, uh, part of the purpose of these refineries to to take that crude oil and to break it down to be able to use it in other ways. What do they apply to it? They imply intense heat, right? Some of that is up to, I've heard, four, six, seven hundred degrees um, on that crude oil to break it down, to be able to use it in different ways, different parts of that petroleum and to put it into other forms. Intense heat. Intense heat is a necessary part of the process to get it to a place where it is usable, to be able to transform it into something else. And so the trials and the suffering that we go through, the hard times, the difficulties, these things are not to destroy us. These things are to purify us, the refiner's process of using the intense heat to transform us into Christ-likeness, to make us more who He is and less who we are. And then the second idea, the second statement about salt has to do with preservation or authenticity. Salt is intended to be salty. It's intended to be salty. All of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all talk about this idea of tasteless salt, of the salt losing its flavor, that it's not doing what it was created to do. So what that means for us as kingdom citizens, particularly in the context of Mark chapter 9, as kingdom citizens, this includes, and Jesus spells it out here, maintaining peace with other followers. Think about it in the context of what we've been discussing. Not arguing over who is the greatest. Not arguing over who is in and who's out and who's got it figured out and who doesn't. The idea of maintaining our saltiness here is the idea of being at peace with one another. This word peace comes from that Hebrew word shalom, which is more than just a Hebrew greeting shalom, y'all, right? It's the idea of wholeness and completeness, that we are to be whole followers of Jesus, seeking to push other followers toward wholeness. So be salty. I don't mean go home and be grumpy with your spouse. I mean, be salty in a kingdom way. No, God is doing his work to make us more like Jesus, trial by fire. Strive for peace with those who are on the journey with us. So these are pretty, three, pretty straightforward lessons for disciples that are still very applicable for us. Here's how I summarize them for you. Going old school. Three statements that all start with R. Alliteration. I have the art of alliteration this morning. I rarely alliterate anything. Recognize who the real enemy is. Recognize who the real enemy is. This guy's casting demons out. That's the enemy. It's not the guy in the name of Jesus exercising the demon. Know who the real enemy is. Other Jesus followers. They're not the enemy. Other churches, they're not the enemy. Know who the real enemy is. Recognize who he is. So here's how it would encourage us in this area. Cling tightly. Cling tightly to the essentials and hold everything else loosely. It's what Jesus did. Second, remove whatever is hindering you from the pursuit of kingdom life. Whatever needs to be cut off, whatever needs to be removed from your life, pursuing kingdom living, right? Remove those things. Remove the hindrances. Hebrew writer said, put those weights, those hindrances aside as you run the race pursuing Jesus. So I want to encourage you, follower of Jesus, whatever is hindering you, From the pursuit, the all-in pursuit of kingdom life. Get those things out of your life. Remove those things. Not in your own strength, but in the grace-equipping power of the Holy Spirit, right? Remove those things from your life. It's all the way back to Mark's basic thoughts. Repent and trust. Live under His rule and reign. Cling to Jesus. After all, we serve a Savior who was not hindered from his mission. We've seen it over and over again in Mark's gospel. People constantly trying to pull Jesus away, religious leaders, disciples, crowds, trying to get Jesus unfocused on his mission. And yet, we serve a savior who was faithful, who was not hindered, who was not distracted. By the way, we're sitting here as forgiven followers of Jesus because he was not hindered or distracted. He went all the way to the cross. Everything he's telling his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, all those things happened. Why? Because he refused to be hindered from the cross, from the mission of God. So whatever it is, whatever obstacles, hindrances are in your life, right, we pray that the Holy Spirit will bring those things to light as we live life and to be able to put those things aside as we are pursuing what it means to be a kingdom person. And then the the last one, my my last R, just the, the application for us, like retain your flavor. Be salty. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are salt. You are salt and light, Matthew says. So lean into Jesus during the tough times. As a salty person, when trial by fire happens, those moments purify us. They refine us for his glory. So when the fire is happening, be salty. Lean into Jesus. He's doing something. He's doing something in your life. Lean into him, even when it's tough. And then the flip side of the saltiness, like retain your flavor by seeking peace over conflict. Seek unity over conflict, right? Seek peace over division. Followers of Jesus, hand in hand, arm in arm, living life together, by the way, Retaining our flavor, being salty, it's what Jesus did. He walked through the valley of death so that he might be exalted and glorified, right? He maintained his mission. It's what he did. So, in short, from Mark 9, in the end, well, this is our calling as kingdom citizens. Our calling is to follow the king, to follow Jesus. So keep your eyes on Jesus. And here's what will happen. God will do his work in you. God will do his work in you. Guess what? He lives inside of you. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of us as we stay focused on Jesus, as we are reminded who the enemy is, as we are seeking to remove whatever is hindering us from the pursuit of life, as we are seeking to retain our flavor by trial, fire, trial by fire and uh, seeking peace with one another, that God will do his work in us to make us more like Jesus and less like us. So, passage, man, difficult to kind of wade through what is Jesus talking about here. But I hope we can see the simplicity of the message here, working together for kingdom purposes with our eyes on Jesus. Let's bow our heads for prayer.